Well, a couple of years ago, the satirical website, the Babylon Bee, uh, had a story about a Presbyterian church, Presbyterian congregation, that uh, unfortunately had to worship in the dark for the last part of their service because the motion detector that kept the lights on had not been activated for some time due to lack of movement in the congregation. And look, I, you know, I've preached a lot of challenging passages in my day, but it is, you know, it's possible that nothing will send the shiver down the rigid spine of a Presbyterian pastor so much as a passage that begins with, clap your hands, uh, shout to God with loud songs of joy. I mean, let's be honest, for the better part of four centuries, the particular tradition uh, in which I was ordained and Greg was ordained and with which this church is affiliated, and, and I should say for which I'm deeply thankful, you know, has done its level best not to let Bible passages like this get in the way of a worship service carried out decently and in good order, right? At the same time, determining that our worship be carried out in decent, decently and in good order is not something that a bunch of, you know, whiskey-drinking, mustache-twisting Presbyterians conjured up, you know, in the Scottish Highlands four centuries ago. Uh, it's actually Paul's instruction for our worship that he gave two millennia ago. So this is kind of what I've been wrestling with this week, is Psalm 47 isn't merely describing worship in which there is clapping and shouting and singing together with loud songs of joy, but it is outright demanding it. So what are we to do with the fact that this is decent and well-ordered worship? Or maybe to put it another way, could it be that corporate worship lacking in the zeal described here is in some way indecent and out of order? Now, I want to say from the start that the focus of this psalm is not about which correct worship style is to be adopted. Uh, in fact, the psalm is not instructing us on practice as much as it is informing us whose presence we're in. The, the focus here is on the implications, on what has to happen when you find yourself in the presence of the sovereign God. Hands aren't clapped just for the sake of clapping hands. Songs aren't sung loudly just so we might sing songs loudly. Not just to, you know, we're not just whooping it up. Instead, clapping is a necessary consequence of being in the presence of God the King. Shouting and singing are a result of apprehending and enjoying the greatness and the beauty of God our King. A few decades ago, the phrase, Elvis has left the building, worked its way into the lexicon, and that phrase originated in what had to be done at the end of every Elvis Presley concert, uh, because the crowds got so electrified by his presence that the only hope arena officials had to somehow restore order was to let everyone know he's not here anymore. The, the critical factor, in other words, was... The critical factor of what was practiced in those arenas was the presence of the king, the king of rock and roll. And in Psalm 47, that's the critical factor. The king hasn't left the building. He has come in the building. 
He's here. We're in His presence. And His presence is critical to the practice of the people gathered before Him. So, yeah, every week we give this call to worship, and we need to be very clear of what that is not. It is not the equivalent of flickering the lobby lights so that everyone would know that the show is about to begin. It is instead to alert everyone that we've entered the presence of the king. We are before his throne. And that demands a certain response. But, but before we get to that, I, I want to notice something striking. And, and I want to even say a little subversive in this call to worship in verse 1. And that is that the call is issued to all peoples. All the peoples. It's not clap your hands, Israel. It's not clap your hands, America. It's not clap your hands, Baptists. It is clap your hands, all peoples. And you know, that, I think, is worth a sermon all on its own. But just to kind of scratch the surface, at minimum, it, it has to reset our expectations for what gathering together for worship here week to week is all about. At minimum, it means there are bigger things afoot, there are greater powers at work, there are larger interests in play than what's just happening in this room for an hour and a half on a Sunday. Because we're in the presence of the great king of all peoples. It's about the king, which makes the question of what am I getting out of it, I want to say seem a little bit embarrassing. A little bit petty. I saw a meme the other day that had one person saying, you know, leaving church. I, I didn't really enjoy that worship service very much. And there was another person there to respond. And their response was, well, that's okay because we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> that's a good point, you know. Have mercy. <laughs> so it seems to me that a better question than what am I getting out of it is what might I be, what might I be getting myself into? What might, I, what, what might I be getting myself into this morning? What, what are the implications of getting into the presence of the living God in worship before his throne with his people? That's why this call to worship in the presence of the king reads a lot more like an imperative than it does like an invitation. It's, it's more command than it is call to worship. In fact, the psalmist doesn't seem very much concerned at all with what your preference or mine might happen to be. It doesn't even seem very concerned about what we may or may not happen to believe. He is simply proclaiming the greatness of the king over all the earth and saying, you have got to respond to this. The king is here. And that sensibility, I think, deepens in verse 2 in telling us that the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Now, no, nobody would have batted an eye if worship was directed here to the God of Israel uh, with the understanding that his authority applies to us, and, but it ends at our borders and at the boundaries of our ethnicity. But the, but the claim here, again, is not just that he's our God, but that he's your God. Yours too. He's not just our mascot. He's everyone's monarch. And that means that like it or not, you're in relationship with him. The only question is, what is the nature of that relationship? And because that's true, we are left with one of two relational options. 
as it relates to our relationship with God the King, we are either to honor and worship Him as King, or we are rebelling against Him as King. But what we can never say is He's not the King, or I've got another King. He's the only King over all the peoples, over all the earth. And, and look, as, as I know this sounds really intense, and, and, and here's why. Because it is really intense. But here's the thing I want to see that is the most intense thing about this psalm, and that is joy. This is a psalm of great joy. The psalmist never says, the king is here, run for your life. He does say, the king is here, clap your hands and sing loudly. His kingly sovereignty, in other words, isn't this crushing thing. It is a cause for celebration. It's the fountain of joy. So in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist gets really specific about that which we are celebrating. It begins with God choosing our heritage for us. And this, he calls that the pride of Jacob. And in this context here, he's speaking specifically about giving them the land of Israel. And that's really key. Uh, Israel was not won by them. It was given to them. Uh, they didn't secure it by way of their fighting. God was always saying, I was the one who fought for you. Um, they didn't get it for themselves. And the implication for that, one fact for, for all of life means, you know, they're massive. It basically means that from the ground they walked on to the fields that fed them to the homes that, that sheltered them to the fellowship that they shared, all of it, all of life was one big experience of understanding that it was all given to us by grace. We didn't win any of it. We didn't secure any of it. There's cause for celebrating God's grace and placing us in the land of the living. And the praise continues in God giving, him the, giving them his love. Last week in Psalm 46, we saw how God twice called himself the God of Jacob. And we talked about how kind of scandalous that was. Because Jacob, you know, of the three patriarchs that are usually named in the, you know, in the covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that you wouldn't associate with, the one that's embarrassing, the one who is always scheming and lying and deceiving was Jacob. And yet God loves to associate himself with Jacob. And here, there he identifies himself as the God of Jacob, and here he talks about his people as the Jacob whom he loves. And that's kind of doubly troubling. Because not only does God love the most notorious scheming scoundrels like Jacob, but he's calling all of us a bunch of Jacobs. And you know, that, that kind of hurts my feelings. You know, I mean, I'm a church. I got a little dressed up. I even brought my Bible. I like to think I'm a pretty good person. And I, I think others might say the same. Haven't I done a little something to earn the love? Maybe a like? But here's the thing. This is precisely why there is so much joy in this worship. The fact that God loves Jacob's and that he knows that I'm a Jacob. I'm just like him. And, and I want to tell you, that's pretty much inexplicable. It, it, it is, one writer said, it is as inexplicable and inscrutable and mysterious as is his love for the world, his love for the church, his love for you and me. It is inexplicable and it is wonderful. And I think critical to understand, to understanding if you want to enter the joy of the king. If you really want to know this joy. 
Because essential to acknowledging and enjoying the greatness of the king is to accept him as king, not consultant. And and failure to accept him on his own terms as the real king, I think, will mean we have little hope of understanding real grace. And here's what I mean. So long as we hold him to our standards, to our agenda, to our timing, to our expectations, we are relating to him in some way, just not as king. Not as the one who rules and reigns as he pleases, without having to justify himself to his customer base. And when it comes to how he chooses to apply that grace, he is free to act with kingly, joyous, loving, sovereign fiat. And that is good news. And when we imagine that the king has put in place certain qualifications or conditions that must be met in order to get his grace apart from faith, or that he must operate in ways that we have judged to be fair and sensible, you know, we're really nullifying the very essence of grace, are we not? And we're rejecting him as king at the same time. And sadly, I think Christians are kind of notorious for this, aren't we? I mean, we're sort of infamous for overtly or subtly putting the idea out there that because we've done the right things and have avoided the wrong things and joined the, or joined the right tradition or constructed watertight theological system or had the right experiences or supported the right causes or candidates or in some way or other successfully navigated life to the end that the result is that I'm now in God's good graces and he has to accept me for what I have done. That's a disaster. That's not grace. I mean, look, ensuring that the proper qualifications and credentials have been attained is a great formula in hiring an employee. It's good way to get into college. It's a good way to find a good plumber. It's a terrible way to fall in love. And God loves us. If if your friendship or courtship or marriage or parentage is grounded in what's made your friend or spouse or child worthy of you, worthy of your affections, that's not love. That's labor. And God doesn't love us like that. He loves us with a kingly freedom and a joy and a generosity all his own. There is such joy in God's grace precisely because we know not only that we haven't earned his affection, but because we're all Jacobs and have earned his derision, and there's joy to be had in the fact that the king has loved us just because he has. Because out of the deep, mysterious greatness and generosity of his heart, he just delights in it. And and I want to point out, His love is the opposite of stingy. When he established the covenant with Abraham and told him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed and added, that those who would come to know his grace couldn't even be counted if he tried any more than if you and I went to the beach and said, let's number each of the grains of sand along this stretch of coast. You can't do it. You can't. It would be as if we got on a mountain with the best telescope and said, you know, bring me back the tally of the stars that you've counted. That's what he said to Abraham. You cannot count them. There will be so many. And I suspect that in celebrating and honoring God's gracious nature, there's also a call here to be honest about our own nature. Maybe it would be helpful to take a moment to think about the Jacobs in your life and in my life. Just to think for a moment about that person 
or those people who are forever failing us and disappointing us and, and disrespecting us, who never listen to our advice, who are always ripping us off, who, you know, think about the money that they have borrowed from you that you know, you know you're never going to see again. The ways they've embarrassed you or shamed you or hurt you or those close to you. Think about all the terrible decisions without learning anything. I'm, I'm giving you a moment. Do you have a person or, or two in your mind? Anybody? Then let me ask you this. Are they at the center of your heart's affections? Are they your heart's delight? When you speak about them, is it in terms of affection or condemnation? Are they a delight or a disappointment? Are you quick to forgive them so that their sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered or grudged again? Are you proud to identify with them? Do you take their name and reputation and attach it to, the, to your own? Would you take their credit report and make it your own? Do you long for and work for their good? Do you love them so deeply as to give your life away so that they would thrive? I don't know about you, but when I think of every person I've ever known in, in my life and consider who has, not, who has managed not to fail me in at least one of those ways, I could think of maybe two or three people that might make the cut. And I can assure you that I wouldn't make anyone's cut. And then when I think how readily I make demands of God, how easily I begin to imagine in my heart that if only the Lord were as gracious and favorable and fair-minded as I am, well, then the world would be a lot better place. And to that, I just want to say, Lord, have mercy on me. It is cause of the highest praise and joy that our, God and king, that our God is king and I am not. That he is sovereign and free and gracious. That he is a Jacob-loving God who brings life and joy to the nations. Praise God. There's joy in knowing that he loves us too much to just meet our expectations, right? But he goes beyond that. In fact, in verse 5, the congregation says he deserves to be exalted to go up with a shout, the sound of a trumpet, above all. Now, that's what's, be, what's being celebrated in that is not people elevating God. He, he can't be really elevated by us in the, in the you know, sort of, um, you know, like we're making him bigger than he is. He is already elevated and high above all. But an important key to understanding what's going on in this is in 2 Samuel 6 and the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought up to Jerusalem. It's important because the language in that story and in this psalm are nearly identical. And, and the story of the Ark being brought up is one of the great stories of celebration in the Bible. I encourage you to look at it later, 2 Samuel 6. And what makes it great is not that God's people are coronating him as king, but that he's present with them as their king. And that joy of knowing that God is present with his people cannot be contained. It just explodes. I mean, no one's supposed to be more dignified than, than Israel's king. And yet, when the ark is taken up, David goes before it dancing with all his might. And, and as you read to the end of that chapter, there's a, there's a woman named Michal who is just scandalized by that. She thinks it is far below his dignity. It's embarrassing. And not only that, but it was... 
you know, like that South African World Cup where everyone's blowing their horns and you can't hear anything and everyone's shouting. And, you know, they not only sacrifice the fattened animal, but they throw in a big old ox, you know, for good measure. And, and all of that activity is described in terms of exalting the Lord, of celebrating His glory, of rejoicing, carousing, jubilating, luxuriating together in God's supreme good. This joy is what C.S. Lewis calls the serious business of heaven. The joy of, of, of the Lord coming into their presence is, is such serious business that everything else takes a back seat. The crowd control, who cares? The cost of the event, who cares? The dignity of the king, who cares? And that's why singing praises is so important. That phrase, sing praises, is repeated not once, not twice, but five times in just two verses. And, you know, I know we're a bit hemmed in in the days of COVID, but singing together to our king with all your might is serious business. You don't want to be in the presence of the king just sort of ho-hum. It seems to me, in fact, that there's a direct correlation between the depths of our love and the extent of our praise. One that will show up in, in, in our life and reveal what our hearts actually deem worthy. That which we exalt. You might remember the character Cameron from the greatest movie ever made, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Cameron was Ferris's best friend. And uh, he was this damaged guy hypochondriacal, nervous, the only child from a cold and unloving family who lived in a cold and unloving house. Except it wasn't that there was no love in that house. There actually was love in that house. There was intense love in that house. It's discovered when Ferris comes over and makes this outlandish suggestion that he and Cameron should have a day skipping school having fun in Chicago, and that they ought to take his dad's 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. And as if it weren't already clear from the fact that the car occupied a room a whole lot nicer than Cameron's room, Cameron explained to Ferris where the love was in his house. He said, my father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love. It is his passion. Ferris, my father loves this car more than life itself. Ferris, you don't understand. He never drives it. He just comes out here and rubs it with a diaper every now and then. And Ferris persists. And later in the movie, after they take the car out, they come back and they realize that the miles are showing up on the odometer and they can't figure out how to reverse that and make it appear that the car was never taken. It becomes, in that moment, clear what damage the disordered love that is run amok in this house has done to Cameron. He begins to kick the car's lights in. He is no longer talking to Ferris or his girlfriend. He just cries out to his absent father, who do you love? You love a car. You hate your wife, but you love the car. You see, God gave us hearts which can't help but attach themselves with great love but hearts which were made to find their life in Him, in the Lord. To, to, to direct our love to Him so that in loving Him, we're actually able to enjoy Him and all the good gifts. But, but those loves are so easily misdirected and drawn to give glory to sham kings and to laud that which can never love us back and to honor as God's gifts 
which we, we were meant only to enjoy. And, and that story of Cameron shows that, you know, that's just not something that about me personally. It hurts people around me. It lies at the very heart of the damage we do to ourselves and to others. We love the cars, we reject the Camerons. <laughs> Augustine put it so well when he said, you have made us for yourself. He said, this is a prayer. You've made us for yourself, Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It seems to me that in this psalm of praise, there is a, a clear call to pay attention to the heart, attention to that correlation between the depths of our love and where we direct our praise. And, and I hope, you know, this week maybe we can reflect on that. And, and maybe if you're a little bit courageous, you can even ask people who know you well what they think your deepest loves are, what they consider your most treasured commitments. It'd be interesting to hear that from someone. And the fact, the fact is we just can't help giving away the glory. We will worship and praise and exalt something. And the tragedy is we give that glory away far too easily. There is nothing more tragic and damaging to our souls and to the lives of others than settling for reflected glory without ever getting to the real glory to be enjoyed in the presence of the King, the giver of all good gifts. And especially tragic is you don't even have to choose. We don't have to choose between the gift and the giver because both are on offer. C.S. Lewis famously said that when you seek the glory and the giver, you get the gifts thrown in, but when you seek glory and the gifts, you get neither the gifts nor the giver. Well, the psalm ends ex as explosively as it began. It begins with a call to worship. A call to worship God as king of not only his people, but of all peoples. But you still, at this point in the psalm, you might think, well, one can be a subject of the kingdom, but maybe not a full citizen of it. You know, if you look at verses 3 to 4, there's all that stuff about how God has allowed us to subdue the peoples and nations under our feet. So you can imagine God... God's people taking even a little bit of delight and cherishing the idea that while he may rule over all, the only people who get the real relationship are us Israelites, his covenant people. So you could begin to think of God's reign as more imperial than personal. Like maybe one day you might get citizenship, but it'll be really hard, and no matter what, you'll always be reminded that at the end of the day, you're just not from around here until you get to verse 9, a verse in which everything changes with not just a single word, but in fact a single letter. It's, it's in that verse that describes a massive gathering of all peoples. These are the peoples who've been called to worship, and they're all there, represented by their princes before the thrones of God. But what begins as a gathering of all the peoples becomes a gathering of one people by its end. In the presence of God, before his throne, through the worship of this great and gracious king, the peoples of the world become the people of Abraham, the people of the God of Abraham. We're bearing witness to the fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise that God would make from him a great nation and that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Worship of the king, enjoyment of God's covenant love isn't this club-forming thing or this clique-forming thing or a country-forming thing. It is a people-forming thing. 
This is maybe most vividly displayed later on in the Psalms in Psalm 87, where we get this rogues gallery of the worst enemies Israel ever had. Egypt is there, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. They're all before the throne of God. But the shock is they're not there to be judged. And, and not even as former enemies is it said that they have come to believe in me, but instead God says to them, God proclaims over them, these are those who have been born to me. What that means is that in the kingdom of God, no one can ever say to you, you're not from around here. Because everyone was born here by God's grace. Born to God in the city of God. Born into the people of the God of Abraham. Not merely to become citizens in the kingdom, but actually children of the living God. That's why in John 3, Jesus is so indignant that Nicodemus doesn't understand what it means to be born again. He, he, he says to him, he goes, you're a teacher of Israel and you still don't understand these things? Did you miss kindergarten and, ra and rabbi school? Because this is the ABC 123 stuff of how God works in saving his people. The church isn't called as an entity unto itself with worship to a tribal God, carrying out all of its inscrutable rituals and, you know, keeping others out, or if they're going to come in, we're going to make it really hard for them through some immigration process. It's a calling to be the embassy of the kingdom, the message of the king to the glory of the king, the place in which all the peoples gather before the king that we might become one new people by faith, reconciled to him and each other, rejoicing in the king, resting in his reign as children born again by faith. The psalm ends with God's people anticipating that which will come to be accomplished, accomplished in Jesus Christ. Poetry becomes prophecy in this moment as they sing together at the top of their voices, the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. What they are expressing there in song Jesus speaks uh, very directly about himself in John 12. He tells his disciple that the day is fast approaching when he will draw all peoples to himself. He will do that by being exalted, by what he says in his language there, by being lifted up. But here's the thing. Jesus' saving work won't be accomplished by way of a glorious coronation, but it comes instead by way of a gory crucifixion. That is to say, if you want to see the glory and the greatness of the King, look to the cross of Jesus. If you want to see His free and ferocious grace for Jacobs like you and me, look to the cross of Jesus. If you want to see God's power to save that which would, should have been lost forever, look to Jesus. If you want to see how he will reconcile all the peoples into one new born-again people, look to the cross to the Savior and King who died so that all his people might live by faith. Look to Jesus who came not to subject people to himself with the brutal tools of kingly power, but to save them from their sins by the gracious fearsome power of God and allowing the punishment for sin that should have crushed you and me and Rahab and Egypt and Philistia and Tyre and Cush fall on him for us. 
come into the presence of the great King, to the foot of the cross, to the power of God, and to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Savior who died for our rebellion, that we might be reconciled to the King, born again, made not merely to be subjects or citizens, but children. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table. Lord, we attach some amount of, uh, I guess, pomp to coming to the table. Some of that's necessary. There's a lot of people here to feed. But, but I, what I don't want to lose sight of is that this is the table of our Father. This is a family meal. The grace on offer here, the grace that you seek to work into our sensibilities in the most visceral way is rich and free, and it is for us life. And so, Lord, I pray that um, we would not lose sight of, of the greatness of our King uh, and the grace of our King, and that we would remember that, that your reign is not tyrannical. It is deeply gracious. It is nourishing. Lord, you are not making demands of us as we come forward this morning, but you are in, instead giving us everything we need for life and godliness. You're delivering grace to our, to our very hearts. And so, our Lord and God, our great King, we worship you this morning. We thank you for calling us to yourself. And Lord, we pray that we would be well-nourished and that again, this would benefit not only us, but that grace would flow from us, that we would be kingdom people calling others to know their king truly as he is, to know his grace, to know his love, to know his reconciling gospel power, which changes all of life and delivers us from death into life. Lord, be with us now as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.